Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Um, this is the season of Advent. We're kicking that off. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yes. Somebody can amen that. Uh, did you eat a lot? Oh, yes. Yes. It's good every so often just to feast and remind ourselves. Man, that's what the kingdom's going to be like. Jesus is going to lay a spread for us. It's going to be fantastic. So uh, I'm really grateful uh, that you're here today. Um, the first Sunday of Advent is the, the Sunday of Hope. Um, we concentrate on these four themes as we um, run up to Christmas. Hope and peace and joy and love. And we do so uh, to, we kind of pause everything else to interrupt our lives, to remind ourselves, hey man, these things are important things that, that during this season um, are worthy of our focus, but during the rest of the year are worthy of our lives. And so we want to give ourselves uh, to them. And um, we uh, note this with a, a particular um, visual cue by lighting a candle, or as some of you have come to call it, will it actually light? Because if you've been around every so often, you know that on occasion we have struggled up here. Hey, look at there. Look at there. Look at there. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That was weak. I appreciate you sticking with me though. For those of you watching online, what you just missed is a very tepid version of applause that the, the candle actually lit. And so I just wanted you to know that. Uh, we're going to, in this uh, Christmas season, in the Advent season, we're going to be in the book of Matthew here in the first couple of chapters in that particular version of the story of Jesus' birth. And we're going to actually kind of start at the end and work our way backwards towards the beginning here over the next few weeks. And so... Um, Today is about hope. Um, it's about hope. And really, uh, this story, I just want to tour guide through the passage, make a couple of reflections, uh, point to the one reason we're doing this. And then um, and we'll get, so this starts with three kind of different little segments or reports. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 13. If you need a Bible, you can put in your lap. There's some on the sides of the tech booth. If you're a user of the Bible app, you can open up the app and find our live events and all of that. Here we go, Matthew chapter 2. Now, when they had uh, departed, who's the they? The they is the magi or the wise men or the wise guys, depending upon just how smart Alec you feel. Um, these are the uh, uh, kind of the... Uh, Folks from the east who, who brought gold and frankincense and myrrh that we just sung about just a moment ago, they brought those to Jesus. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Joseph is the earthly father of Jesus in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. If you're uh, keeping score at home, that's Hosea is the prophet he's talking about there. Out of Egypt, um, I called my son. So here's kind of a scene number one, a report number one. We're leaving for Egypt. Now, this is an important part here because um, how many of you over the Thanksgiving holiday traveled? Anybody? Yep. Okay. How many of you over the Thanksgiving holiday Traveled at night. Okay. How many of you over the Thanksgiving holiday traveled at night by mule? Anybody? A couple of you. That's odd, but okay. Uh, how many of you um, traveled over Thanksgiving at night by mule while you're uh, with the newborn baby there relatively? Exactly. Um, this is the conversation. So in your mind, just paint this. Um, honey, honey, wake up. What? Don't wake the baby. Whatever you do, don't wake. What do you want? Well, I just had a dream and an angel showed up and we need to leave for Egypt. Honey, do you know what time it is? 
No, you got to get up. We got to go. I can't pack anything. I don't want to wake the baby. Leave me alone. He's asleep. I was finally getting sleep. This hasn't been this way for a while. What's the deal, Joseph? What was in the whatever you ate last night that's causing you to have these problems? Get up. Get your stuff. Get the baby. Get on the mule. We're leaving right now. Awesome. Like, that was fun, right? Those first few miles, I'm sure, were thro- in really exciting. 150 miles or so to Egypt. They left at night. And the, the, that, that, that kind of uh, responsiveness, we'll talk about it more in just a minute, but, I mean, man, what a, what a thing here. And, and if, if that's not enough, go to Egypt, it says, Rise, take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt, this is in verse 13, and remain there. Remain there. So stick around. How are you going to pay your bills? Don't know. Where are you going to land once you get there? Do we have reservations at the Marriott or whatever? When, when we Don't know. But we just know that we're going to stick around for a while. We're going to remain there. Um, who will our friends be? Don't know. I mean, Egypt. In, in, in the Bible story, Egypt, a good place or a bad place? Anybody? Bad, man. You don't want to go to Egypt. In this particular first um, century, uh, there was a little collection of Jews there in the um, Egyptian city of Alexandria. But really, I mean, that's it. How are you going to go and provide for your family? Don't know. How are you going to go and feed your family? Don't know. Do you even speak the language, same language that these people speak? I don't know. Maybe. How are you going to take care of things? Don't know. Where are you going to stay? Don't know. There's a whole lot you don't know. How long are we going to stay? We don't know. We just don't know. Remain there. Just of note here, for some of us, see if this is fair in your life. For some of us, it's, it's not necessarily the going that's the hard part. It's the staying until God says differently. It harkens back a little bit to Jeremiah chapter 29. This is the one that we love. Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Hey, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans to prosper you and do you good. And you're going to have a future and hope. It's going to be awesome. That's verse 11. The preceding 10 verses are a letter that Jeremiah writes. And in it, he says, hey, man, you're going to be in Babylon a while, like 70 years or so. So... Go ahead, build yourself a house, plant a garden, have some kids, get those kids married off, have some grandkids, celebrate the birthdays and all that kind of stuff. You'll stick around. Again, some of us, it's harder to stay than it is to go. And then it says, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. There's the motivation right there. Leaving for Egypt, why? Herod's a murderer. He's a murderer. That's all there is to it. There, there are evil people in the world who want to do evil things. And here is the evil thing that he does. This is kind of report number two. There's weeping in Bethlehem. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, they went home a different way and didn't tell him. Um, he became furious. We'll just pause right there. Uh, insecure leaders with military um, power and spiritual callousness, they are a menace to the ordered world and society. This, so he sent, in the middle of there of verse 16, he sent, he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time uh, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Um, 
here's the thing about Herod, who called himself Herod the Great, but let's be clear, not so much. Um, it, it, when there's weeping in Bethlehem there, um, this wasn't even the worst thing that Herod did. Like, it didn't even make the historical headlines. The, the weeping here and the, the death here and the tragedy here and the, the um, horrific nature of this right here, it didn't even make the top ten for terrible things that Herod the Great did. This is not a nice guy. And, and, and the evil that he unleashed in the world, or planned to unleash in the world, this, this is all part of... Um, and that evil kind of passed down to his uh, offspring. Like, when we have this in our lives and don't deal with it, don't regulate it, this is the kind of thing that tumbles down for generations. In his particular case, Herod the Tetrarch, who we'll hear later uh, from later uh, in the story of Matthew, kills John the Baptist. He takes, uh, uh, he, he has passions in his life that he wants things, and he is permissive of himself instead of disciplining himself to do that, and ultimately it costs the life uh, of John the Baptist. Um, so this, now verse 17, and this was to fulfill, or this, excuse me, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. A couple of questions here as we think about weeping in Bethlehem. Number one, how in the world could this happen on God's watch? Like, come on, man. This seems really out of whack. Here's the short answer for that. I don't know. I do know that there's real evil in the world, and we have to reckon with that and respond accordingly and appropriately. But I don't know why. I really don't. What I do know is this. Um, this pain did not go unnoticed. That's why Matthew brings it out here. Uh, it, it's why he ties it uh, to the to the. Uh, this is uh, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet of Jeremiah, or what then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. He's tying it to uh, things that God has already like these themes, if you will. He's saying, "Hey, look, man, this is part of it. This is just part of the deal. There's brokenness and evil in the world, and things terrible, terrible things, evil things happen." How could, how could this happen, though, under God's watch? Don't know. I, I do know that the pain doesn't go unnoticed. Our pain never does. Some of you may have gone to Grandma's house or somewhere, um, somewhere over the break. And maybe at some point you're, you know, flipping through a book or, or cleaning out a closet or whatever. You know, you're like past turkey and the football game's not closed. And so you're like stepping into something else just to keep your, try to keep yourself awake until the pie is finally ready. You know, whatever it may be. And you're going through and you're cleaning out and there's a box or a book or whatever. And you flip through, flip through. And you're like, what is this? And you walk in and you show grandma and you're like, grandma, why in the world did you keep this? Why did you keep it? It's a picture that I drew on uh, manila construction paper with a purple crayon that was used and chewed on by the dog. And I'm pretty sure I sneezed on it. That's the dot pattern that you see. Why did you keep this? Grandma looks at you and goes, I care about it. Not exactly an art piece for the Louvre, Grandma. Like maybe, just maybe, we could ditch this and move on. No, no. But I care about it. Similarly, this is how the New Testament talks about God in relationship to our pain. It says he stores up our tears in a bottle. And for some of us, man, you would look at God and think to yourself, 
Why did you keep that stuff? And God's answer is pretty simple. Because I care about it. And I care about you. And it's valuable to me. The pain doesn't go unnoticed. Our pain never, ever does. And furthermore, God cares so much about you that he has inserted himself um, into the story. He doesn't just notice our pain, but he actually enters into it. Jesus himself is in the picture. Like he has stepped into this particular story. So how could this happen under God's watch? No idea. But he cares about your pain and he's entering into it in order to bring um, what he wants to out of it. Second question, uh, a little bit more personal, and maybe it's a word you use this today, or excuse me, this week, probably not. Do, do you know how to lament? A voice was heard in Rama, weeping, loud, there's the word, lamentation. Lament. It, it's, a, it's a kind of a funny mixture, uh, like a really strange kind of cocktail version of, of about three things. Righteous anger, significant or deep sadness, and a kind of intense longing for what ought to be. Righteous anger, that is not right. That's not good. And it's not like offensive only to me. It's like offensive to the world. That's not right. Do you know how to lament? And then you mix in some, because I know it's not right, but it still is. I, I wish it weren't, but it, but it still is. So I'm frustrated by it. I'm angry about it. There's righteous anger about it, but I'm, I'm mixing in this kind of deep sorrow that goes with it. Um, the, there's weeping as a result of that. And then this intense Longing, Not just I'm mad, not just I'm going to weep about this, but this expression of intense longing that goes, and listen, this is not how it ought to be, and one day, thankfully, it won't be. And there's hope built in right there. Why don't we talk about hope? With lament. Some of you, if you're not familiar with lament, I want to invite you to a bestseller. Can I give you a book recommendation? The Psalms. There's 65 psalms of lament. Better than a third of the, not quite half, but better than a third of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. Anger, that unrighteousness exists in the world. Deep sorrow in response to it. And a longing, intense longing for what ought to be. Do you know how to lament. And if you're not um, familiar with those psalms or whatever, I just, maybe you're not even familiar enough with, uh, with the Bible to understand what that would be. But I just want to tell you, the psalms are incredible poetry that give you permission to feel all the things that normal humans feel. And then give you language around that stuff. It's super helpful. Do you know how to lament? Weeping in Bethlehem. L- last scene here, verse 19. This third report goes like this. But when Herod died, please don't skip past that because injustice does not rule forever. Herod died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and he took the child and his mother, <clears throat> excuse me, he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But we, when he heard that Archelaus 
who was Herod's kid. Um, Archelaus was reigning over Judah, uh, Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. If you're not familiar with the Christmas story, this is where they started the whole thing. Luke chapter um, 2 there. Um, before they went to Bethlehem, they went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So returning to Nazareth. A couple of things here just of note. One, uh, when God showed up and spoke to Joseph again, where was he? He was in Egypt. I say that to note this, that some of us in our obedience feel like, okay, now I've uh, uh, put myself on an island out here. I'm marooned out here in Egypt, wherever Egypt is for you. And what I recognize here is that there's a lot of stuff that God's doing all the way over there. And I'm pretty sure I'm missing out on all of it. But listen, God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't bypassed you. He hasn't looked around you. And he didn't send you there just to go, 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 go. Go. He shows up in Egypt to show us that we are not out of reach. We are not passed by and we are not forgotten. I note that, y'all, because some of us, uh, you know, kind of depending upon the environment in which we were raised, we think to ourselves, there's no reason God would come looking for me, but he does. Some of us think, oh, no, no, because of the choices I've made. There's, like, I don't want God to come looking for me. But he does. God shows up in Egypt. And second part under this, that there is a kind of prudence with Joseph's obedience. This is that middle part. He's going to come back, and he's like, dude, I don't want to show up in, in that area again. Like, Herod's kid is reigning there. That's not, that's not all right. I, I want to go live somewhere else. There is a prudence mixed um, with his obedience. And that's exactly uh, what happens here. And, and God uses that uh, to bring about what he wants. He's returns, he returns there uh, to Nazareth. So those are the three big reports. How does that all tie to hope? I'll give you two realities quickly. Reality number one, our present obedience... Our present obedience expresses our hope. It it looks at the brokenness in the world and says, I'm going to obey God. And that that obedience to him is a defiance, is in defiance of the brokenness that is in the world or my brokenness that is in the world. That's what present obedience does. What does that mean? It means God will not leave us without guidance. The question, I think, is whether or not we will jump to obedience or not. What did Joseph do? Three times an angel showed up and said, hey, Joseph, you need to do this. The first time we'll encounter in a couple weeks in Matthew chapter 1. Hey, listen, uh, this fiance of yours, she's pregnant. It's nobody's fault and she didn't do anything wrong. Marry the girl. Well, okay. Hey, I know you just had all this excitement here with the uh, the... Wise men from the east, but um, Herod is going to come after you and after your kid, and so you want to get up and go to Egypt. Mary, get up. We got to go. We got to go now. That kind of jumping to it, like he just inclines it. And then an angel shows up in Egypt. Hey, listen, it's time to go back. Well, let's go. I mean, we just unpacked the last box. Well, let's go anyway. We finally got the things arranged on the shelf. Let's go. Let's go. God will not leave us without 
guidance. The question is whether or not we will jump to obedience like Joseph did. And, and if that obedience that we jump to will actually be full obedience. Go to Egypt, remain there. And he stayed. And then returned. And he returned. Go to Egypt. I'll go. Remain there. I will. Return. Okay. Is the, is the bent of our heart toward obedience. I, I note here, um, in verse 22, uh, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. He was afraid. F- fear. It's a normal thing, y'all. Fear can be present without being dominant, though. And if we could just like build that into the spiritual DNA of our lives, because there will be times when God will look at us and tell us to do something. We're like, um, I'm sure that there's a, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm scared. Fear can be present, but not be dominant. Hey, church family, listen. There's plenty of fear out there. All sorts. It comes in all stripes. And it's about all kinds of topics. We, the people of God, can be obedient to him. And still recognize, yeah, man, that's pretty scary. But I'm going to do it anyway. Yes, it's terrifying. But my obedience, is, my commitment to obedience is greater than my commitment to, my, uh, uh, to, to this particular fear. Fear can be present without being dominant. Man, if we could just fly that over our lives. And just say, yeah, I'm, I'm scared. I'm still going to obey. Present obedience expresses our hope. Um, this is just pastoral parentheses here. And just note that uh, this is true of me. Maybe it be true of you. I don't know. Maybe it's not applicable to you. Every so often, God will uh, command me to do something. He will put something in, in my heart. Or I will see, and, and we'll just go, oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I will be sure and get to that. I've got four things on my to-do list here. I'm going to take care of those, and then it'll be lunchtime. And I'll do that. That'd be great. So this afternoon, that's a plan. So you kind of set yourself up. You get those four things done. You get to lunch, and then after lunch, you're like, but i got to take a nap if I'm going to have all the energy to accomplish the thing that I want to do. And then the phone rings, and you get two text messages, and six emails you got to respond to. Be like, I promise it's coming. I promise it. And here's the thing. If you, do, if you, like me, have on occasion delayed your obedience, all you're doing is expressing your disobedience. Because that's what those two things are. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So we want to be the people who just jump to it. Our present obedience expresses our hope. It looks at the brokenness of the world and says, no, 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 no. God's leading me here. He's got me. And uh, yes, I may be terrified, but I know what he is, uh, th- that he is up to something in here. Last thing uh, on, on this, or excuse me, the second thing under this second reality, two realities, is that past events, they stir our hope. If you're listening carefully and, um, and you kind of tracked along with how Matthew is telling the story, not just the story that he's telling, but how he's telling the story, you'd start thinking, Gosh, this story sounds super familiar. There's a guy in Egypt and like an evil king who does terrible things to children. And then they get up out of Egypt. I've heard this story somewhere before. The second book of the Bible, Exodus. 
Matthew is telling this, it's almost like Exodus Redux, like Exodus Part 2, Second Act. Why? Because he wants us, he, he is intentionally laying this, this kind of template or, or lens down on top of all of these events to tell this story because he wants us to know that God is bringing his people deliverance, just like he did then. He's bringing his people deliverance from an evil kingdom and blessing them along the way and establishing them in this new kind of kingdom. This is what he's doing. Yes, there's an evil ruler. Yes, there's death and there's chaos. Yes, um, there is Egypt. And yes, there is an appearance uh, by God to, to guide his people. He's laying this down though so that we think to ourselves, hey, wait a minute. God's done this once before and I'm hearing all these same kind of themes. All these things are tracking for me. And I'm thinking to myself, if God's done that before, then maybe just maybe he'll do it again. If God did it then, then maybe he'll do it now. That's why Matthew tells the story the ways that he does. These past events stir our hope. Oh God, you, you have done it before. So now today, we need you to do it. Why, though? What's, what's the one reason? I, I don't know if you saw it or not, but in the text, when the angel speaks to Joseph, he's like, take the child and his mother. Take the child and his mother. That may be slightly offensive to some of our uh, sensibilities. Like, take the mother and the, and the child, right? Take the child and his mother. No, no, no. Take the mom and the child. Take the mom and the child. This is the way that we would say it. No, no. Take the child and the mother. Why all the fuss about take the child and his mother. Because he's the one reason. Like, who is this guy? Why is this such an important thing? This, this baby who arrived in a different way and would ultimately and finally do what no one else could do? Why, why are we making such a big deal? Because he's the whole reason of this. He is a fully different kind of leader. Moses led the people out of Egypt. But he didn't make it to the promised land. His disobedience cost him. This one though, Jesus. He's not just taking us to the promised land and saying, oh, there's so much more to come. Moses didn't finish the race, but Jesus will. Moses had this moment of frustration where he struck the rock. He's like, ah, I'm tired of these people. And God's like, I get it. And you're out. No more promised land for you. Jesus had moments of frustration too, but he did not sin or blame God for it. What Moses didn't do, Jesus is going to do. His perfect obedience will count for our kind of, uh, for the obedience that we needed. He's a different kind of leader. Secondly, he has a different kind of prophet. Moses outlays the Ten Commandments for us, all this other stuff, all these other important things that we should be doing. Jesus comes along and he doesn't contradict that stuff. He fulfills it. He says, hey, look, all of this is pointing somewhere and it's pointing to me because the kind of work that I want to bring into your life is a kind where you won't just have a bunch of rules around you that you hope you can follow. And if you follow all of them to the degree and in enough, uh, uh, in enough quantity, then maybe just maybe you'll get in when you die. I want to be at work in you so that you become the kind of person who fulfills the law. He is a different kind of prophet altogether. He is, um, his obedience is going as I 
just said. His obedience is going to count um, where our disobedience failed. His obedience is going to count. It will be substituted for us. And the instruction that he gives is the path of freedom for us. It's the path of freedom. If you think to yourself, well, I mean, listen, if an angel showed up, I'd be obedient. I'd be like, if I had a dream and the angel showed up. We have something better than an angel showing up in a dream, y'all. Hebrews chapter 1 says, long ago, in many ways, God spoke. He spoke in all sorts of ways. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. What we have contained in the words that God has provided for us in the scripture, that's better than any angel showing up. Jesus is a different kind of prophet, and he's given us the kind of instruction that is our path to freedom. And lastly, he's offering a different kind of sacrifice. All the sacrificial system that got built out, all the things that had to happen, all the the ways um, that the scale got tipped so the people could get out of Egypt, all of that kind of stuff is pointing somewhere. We're not talking about bulls and goats in a temple. We're talking about Jesus himself offering himself, laying his life down for us so that we really can be cleansed, so that we really can be made new, so that we really can be made right with God. He he offered himself as a sacrifice, a sacrifice for atonement so that you and I would not have stuff between us and God anymore, but he would remove that stuff. He offered himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute, so that what we deserved, he took on, and we, uh, what, what he deserved, we got to be a part of. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for deliverance so that you and I could walk out of the bondage that we were in and walk into the kind of life that he had. This is what he offers to us. He's a different kind of leader. He's a different kind of prophet. And he is offering himself as a different kind of sacrifice. So I'm going to pray for us and just let the Holy Spirit do what, the, what he wants to do here in the room. How he wants to continue to speak to you. How he wants to um, uh, stir up things inside of you. We'll, we'll take just a minute and reflect on this. And uh, then we'll sing together. Let's, let's pray together first. And why don't you, just in a moment of quiet here, just ask yourself, Lord, Lord, what had my name on it? What did you say today that was for me? And now, Father, in Jesus' name and by your Holy Spirit, would you continue the ministry of the word as you take it and and work it into the places in our lives that we need it. Put down distractions, uh, put down what's next, put down all of that kind of stuff. Just work this word down into us wherever we need it. And then as your word promises about itself... Because you are all sufficient that it would not return to you void. Let it be now for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen.